Welcome to the Nurse Leader Network podcast with your host, Chris Racinos. Wherever you're going on your nurse leader journey, we're here to help you get there. Welcome, everybody, to the Nurse Leader Network podcast. I've got a question for you today. Are you a leader that everyone loves? Should you be a leader that everyone loves? Do you want to be a leader that everyone loves? Well, today's guest is going to take us on a journey of how we become the easy to follow leader, how we become the leader that people want to follow without burning ourselves and our staff out. Are you ready? Do you have your seatbelt on? All right, let's get this episode started. Today's guest is Chris Milopores, who is the founder of Bushido Leadership. He is also the author of The Easy to Follow Leader. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I've been enjoying your work wholeheartedly, and it's such an honor to be able to contribute to uh, what you're doing. Awesome. Now, Chris is not a nurse. However, he has worked with nursing leaders in huge capacities. Chris, tell us about your journey. How'd you uh, begin working with nurses? Yeah, it's funny with the work that I do with nurses, I'm asked that all the time. You know, are you a nurse or what's your specialty? And uh, while I'm not a nurse, I was raised by them. Uh, my mom was a nurse and that was my after school program was being all over the place at a, at a hospital, which I know these days would probably just be the biggest of no-nos, but <laughs> I have very fond memories of just interacting with patients and visitors and staff and getting lost in closets and stuff. And it was a lot of fun <laughs> for me as, as a little boy, but um, I, uh, I had started my journey actually just being around it. I originally wanted to get into vet school. And I, I studied pre-vet academically. And when I finished my undergraduate, I just kind of got thrown into what was happening. It was the late 90s. I got into um, um, training and development. And that's where I really found a passion for developing leaders in a truly authentic way. And that journey has taken me a lot of places, but I've really anchored in healthcare in the last decade or so since, 20, uh, since 2010, um, where I've been working with a few different hospital systems in a capacity either as an OD leader, a clinical education uh, leader, and also as a consultant, as a coach. So how did you decide like Bushido leadership just needs to exist? What, how did you get to that point where you're like, okay, this needs to exist and tell us about the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was honestly spawned from some of the work that we were doing in healthcare. Um, I'm a bit of a learning junkie. I've always tried to, to stay very current in what I'm doing because things change so quickly. And for me, it was trying to figure out some of these things that we're doing that were very effective around new leaders, onboarding, uh, handling burnout, uh, helping leaders get in touch with their authenticity. Some of those basics that go beyond you know day-to-day management and, and quality scores and really engaging staff and creating an environment where, where people want to stay and grow. And in trying to, to find some background information on some of these things that we were just sort of happening into, I'd found that they were really quite original and they weren't being done anywhere else. So as a way to not just copyright it, but sort of get it established and maybe a little more widespread, that's where the book ended up coming from. And it's where the LLC had come from really with the book that came together hand in hand to, um, to be able to, to spread it a little bit more uh, to, to different organizations. Oh, I love it. Okay. So here's the burning question. Can you be a leader that everybody loves and still get the outcomes that you want? Or do you have to ruffle feathers? That question is fire. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Um, 
Here's what I'll say to that. The, it's a centerpiece of our, our leadership work is that leadership development is so deeply personal. It can't possibly be one size fits all. There is a, a leader type out there that will absolutely flourish in that sort of centerpiece of the culture, I think is something close to what you're describing is somebody who's universally loved and supported, sought after as a, a trusted advisor. But that's not for everybody. And it's also situational. As some of us know, those of you that may be on, on a magnet journey know that situational leadership is a big piece of that. And so does a leader need to be well-liked? Well, if they do, it's their personality. To function as, as a leader, maybe, maybe not. I mean, this, again, this notion is so deep, deeply personal. I don't know that I have a good answer to that. If we come up with one, though, today in this conversation, it could, it could be <laughs> double right, fire. Yeah. Right? Got to copyright it. <laughs> it could be double fire. Uh, okay, so let's talk about you know what I see or what I have seen in the past in terms of new leaders just you know getting into a leadership position is frequently you know as they're learning their role, they're learning these skills, they're learning what their leadership style is, they're learning how to get outcomes, how to motivate people, especially if they don't have like formal education or uh, deep mentoring and onboarding uh, you know orientation around that. Is that, you know, they tend to ruffle a little bit of feathers, which is sometimes is good and sometimes not so good. But what I find is that those leaders that kind of lead from top down and that's their method, that's just the method that they have, you know, consistently sometimes fail to instill that uh, trust with their team. And then they'll get the outcomes that they want, right? Because of fear versus because people are actually trusting them and and wanting to do the work. And then they take that on with them to each new position around the need to instill this fear, right? I'm going to write you up if you don't do this, or you have to do this because we said so, or we can't have staffing because of whatever. These types of comments, how does a leader who's new to the role begin to not be that leader? How do we begin to not form habits where it's one of fear, burnout, and one more of really curiosity? Yeah. So this was one of the pieces of original work that really kind of blew up in a good way for us. It was realizing that all human beings are motivated by only two things. And when I ask groups if they can name one of them, people think of like, you know, money, recognition, and those things may motivate us in some way. But what it distills to is the only two things that truly motivate human beings to act in any way are fear and desire. So even if you took someone said money. Well, if you have two different people, somebody who may be really scraping to make ends meet, they're behind on all of their bills, um, you know, they don't know where their, their next meal might come from, even if they have a paycheck. Well, they're, they may be money motivated, but that person's motivations and their psyche is far different than somebody who's affluent and wants money for a new toy of some kind. And so, yeah, they're both, quote, money motivated, but to, to not understand how different those people are is we're really missing something. And so this idea of fear, uh, fear versus desire in neuroscience, they refer to it also as threat and reward. We don't realize this, but our brains are constantly scanning our environment for threat and reward. And this is, you know, this harkens back to, you could say our cave person days, it may be evolutionary, that um, you're constantly searching for threat and reward for survival, but also, you know, for your next meal. And if you doubt this, you know, if you're driving down the street sometime, you always notice that idiot on the corner, like, you know, flipping the, the arrow in circles, you know, or, or doing a dance, you know, about some accounting firm on that corner. 
you see that and you know used car lots they have these streamers and flags it's not because it makes the cars any faster it's because <laughs> you know marketers know that we're drawn to movement we're drawn to attention and, and our attention goes there and there's good reasons for that it's because our brain's constantly scanning our our environment so what we also know, and this is recently, just in the last decade or so, neuroscience, not my research, but they've there's a good research that's discovered that we actually respond the same way to social fear and social threat as we do physical threat. So the same sort of uh, sensations that you have if you're, if you're walking alone at night and suddenly you hear footsteps behind you, um, you'll have a whole cascade of, of emotions and hormones that will course through your veins. Well, you also have a very similar uh, neurological reaction to being left out of a meeting or being treated unfairly at work or, or being in- interrupted. And so there, I wanted to sort of throw that out there as just foundational for this fear versus desire. So leaders, whether they pay attention to it or not, are constantly creating an either or in that sense is they're creating a fear, I'm sorry, an environment of fear or, or desire, as you put it, fear versus like curiosity, I think is a much better way to, 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 to describe that. So a lot of organizations, they sort of live under this, this umbrella of threat, where everything that they do, there seems to be an or else like you had better do this because blankety blank. And some of that is very natural, because let's face it, healthcare can be a very consequential environment, it can be life or death. There's a lot of consequences to, to making mistakes. So part of that is already built in and it's natural. But unfortunately, new leaders just from growing up in that environment, they tend to make it so much worse by being out, by, by creating consequences and you'd better do this or because I said so. And as you said, that sort of top down is one of the big drivers for the, the burnout that we see in healthcare. And but I believe, you know, the nursing shortage is much less, you know, we've got plenty of schools and plenty of recruits coming out each year. We, our big problem is honestly keeping people and uh, creating that environment where people actually love, love what they do and they can sustain that for several years and they want to stay and grow in that environment because of what's happening, um, because of what's happening around them. What are some of the things that you see in the work that you're doing that leaders can do to help retain their people, right? We, we are always concerned about staffing. I know for myself, anytime we had somebody give a resignation at several organizations I worked for, they had to actually leave their post before I could even post another job. Meaning I knew for a fact for three months, I'm not going to have somebody there. Right. And this is right. Massive scale thinking, you know, some of these organizations, there was, you know, over thousands of nurses. So we're having this turnover and this constant turn where we want to keep our people. We want them to be happy. What are some differences that you see in how these new leaders can begin to decrease the burnout and retain their staff? Yeah, we look at that function as very outward facing. So administration usually puts heavy pressure on a leader to say, here's an outcome, go get it. And the outcome is driven by these nurses are leaving or they're unhappy or there's engagement scores that, that are low or error rates or whatever it may be. And they're given that, that impetus as you must solve. And what we're failing to do is we're failing to give those leaders the, the ability to be the change, meaning we're, we're failing to really give them the, the support to, to they themselves want to, want to stay and to not experience burnout and to be able to, to experience the, the compassion of being in healthcare and that vibrance of healing that should be a very positive environment. We're not giving leaders permission to necessarily do that. And 
the first thing that, that we do, you know, our program, we do like a three shifts thing. It's a play on words, of course, for day, evening, night shift, just because I've worked with a lot of uh, hospitals that work with a company called Studer and some of them have pillars already in the hospital. And there's a little bit of an aversion to the, to the word pillars sometimes. <laughs> They're like, enough with the pillars. I can't take anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so we're doing three shifts. I, I don't care what you call it, though. But these, these shifts are, are really sort of the first two are very introspective, you know, dealing with the concepts of, of growth mindset and how we, we treat things like you know, simple tasks like, like recognition and how we, we make shifts in our head from, you know, are we constantly trying to demonstrate our value and demonstrate our skills versus are we constantly trying to develop them? And there's small shifts. And Carol Dweck does outstanding work on this. And her stuff is widely available on YouTube and Google. But it's, it's helping leaders sort of live in the different worlds of distress versus eustress. And those are the two different stresses that, that exist. And distress, obviously, is, is the negative stress that we have from the daily trauma of the kind of work that, that we're around every day and the stress and difficulties from it. Eustress, if you think of it in terms of that's what an athlete experiences, where they still have all the pressure, but they're able to channel some of this pressure into, into performance and into learning and, and into growth. And while the athlete, because after all, they are playing a game and it's rarely life and death, the analogy isn't perfectly clean to, uh, to, to healthcare. It's still a very basic psychological split that, that people can take in, in how they handle these difficult situations. And I would say this sort of inside first uh, leadership being an inside job, that's really the major, uh, the major step that, that I take with, with leaders that pays dividends that once they become a little bit more comfortable with the self-healing and self-care and they've got a good rhythm of, of, their, own, uh, of, of their own work, they lead by example at that point and people can see and you smell it on your leader practically. Like you can just see that they're less burnt out and less stressed and they're handling their situation better. And that does more to attract people and keep people than, you know, nighttime ice cream rounds or the coffee cart. Yeah. Um, as valuable and as wonderful as those things are, never take them away if you're listening out there. You know, th- these, are, these are the things that truly retain people. So it sounds like, you know, the first step of becoming an authentic leader really is taking care of yourself in terms of retaining folks. What would you, I mean, in terms of that introspective work, doing self-care, what else does it look like? What else would you include in some of what we need to look at inside prior to us being able to lead well outside? Yeah, um, I actually want to refer to a cast that you had a little while ago. I think it was called uh, Leaders Who Put Themselves Last, Go oh, Nowhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, as I said, I've, no, I've listened to a few of these and I want to refer, if you haven't heard that one, if you're listening, there's some really wonderful gems in there. And I forget which one had mentioned it, but she had talked about a leader being in touch with their values and having your values known and whether it's the organizational values or your own is a giant way for people to truly see your authenticity. I think it's funny that people take like a class on authenticity. And I always say like, if you're trying to be authentic, that's inauthentic. <laughs> You shouldn't try, like. Yeah. But I totally get how tough it can be because of how we're told to to perform and how we're told to to create. But if um, easy example is a value I've always hold held dear was, was courage, and I, I've checked out of a lot of things in in my life. It's not something that I'm I'm proud of. I've, I've met a moment and shied away from it more times than I would care to admit. And so I've been very open with that. And in doing that, 
it's almost like an extra set of accountability for me to let people know that courage is something that I work on. And if there's something that's tough, I'll, I want to step up. And if I don't, I'll let you know and I'll make amends and I'll, I'll try to do it. But you can also help me, you know, if you see an opportunity for me to be more courageous and want me to step up. And immediately now we've created this deep relationship about that so that it's a way for me to receive feedback now. It's a way for me to, to get better at giving feedback because I can, I, can, um, I, can, I can refer to that now if when, I'm, when I'm in that, con- that very difficult conversation. And moreover, when I'm not in the room, if I've done an effective job at engaging people in this value, whatever it may be, when I leave the room, that value still lingers. And people tend to follow that value. They almost act like the rules of the culture after you know, that so-called manager is gone. And that's one of the, the constructs of, of leadership. It's how are people acting when the leader isn't even there? And if a leader's truly done an effective, effective work with, with the team, um, the leader doesn't even need to be there most of the time. Yep. Yeah. I, I literally was just saying that on the last podcast I, I recorded, we were talking about like, that's one of the signs of being a good leader is you could literally go take a month off and nobody's going to call you and things are going to run well. Okay. So I, I, I love where you're going with this. And there was an activity that I used to do with my team and we did it. Um, it was Christmas time, actually, right before the pandemic. And what we did was, we sat down and um, I bought that book, um, Find My Why, like Find Your Why. Have you? I'm assuming you, okay, yeah. yeah. So Find Your Why. And there's a section there for how to do it with a team. So you're supposed to find your own why first, and then you can sit down with your team and define what is your team's why. And what I did was I had us sit down and come up with what our why was and then compare it to my organization's mission and values. And there was a little bit of discrepancies. There was a lot of similarities, tons of similarities, but there, from my team's perspective, there was differences and those needed to be addressed because they were the elephant in the room that had we not addressed them, we wouldn't have been able to achieve mission and vision. Now, that being said, what we didn't do and now what I'm kind of hearing in you is really discuss values and opening that up. So what might that look like if you're a leader and either you're going to do an offsite or you have this new team, how would you begin to explore like what everybody's values are and then begin to start aligning them. And, you know, you shared how you would share your personal, but how as a team do you come up with agreed upon values? Yeah, that becomes a little more difficult because our values are, are personal. And what we, what we know about our values is they're typically things that are attached to just things that are innate within us. And so once someone becomes an adult, you know, you, as you're, grow up, you may be very impressionable. Once you become an adult, it's very uncommon for values to change drastically. You may shift priorities, like some things are more important than others, different points in your life, like financial versus, you know, uh, hedonism and having fun. But what we do know is that if you have a set of values, Chris, or you've got things and, and you've identified them, what we do know is you actually spend part of your bandwidth every day, your, meaning your emotional effort or physical effort, either creating that value around you or going to it. And what we know is that this is one of the biggest reasons why people either act up at work out of like frustration. Most of the negative workplace emotions that come comes from that, that barrier or that gap and a difficulty in, in, in connecting it. And so this gets messy, right? Because say you've got a team, you know, in a unit, you've got maybe 30 people that, that you've collected for this onsite that, that you're describing. Aligning values, it, it's a misnomer. Like it's, 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 uh, it's not effective work uh, because these values are so innate. 
but it, it's addressing where are those outliers and how are we managing that? So if, easy example is, you know, a team of people that are basically introverted that maybe keep to themselves versus one extrovert. Well, you know, that one extrovert's going to feel a little bit alienated and maybe be the first one to talk all the time or kind of be headfirst into everything. And it, it's more addressing those differences. Now, you can align on, on um, like rules of the road and code of ethics and code of conduct and, and things like that. And you can come up with team values, but we have to know as a leader as we do that is people have their set of values. And if their work doesn't align to that, those barriers cause a lot of the workplace friction that we see. And you, you sort of mentioned that in, in your question a little bit where you said people did this exercise. It didn't quite jive with the organization's uh, mission and the organization's vision. And the conversation that comes up from that must be fascinating because people really do tend to open up when you've got to something really personal about them. Yeah, it was. It was really interesting. And the I think what we found was actually that we felt that there was a huge piece of self-care, family lives, like that piece we felt was missing. And so we actually sent it forward and was like, and we're like, hey, we think that this really needs to be included in our mission, right? Because we're going to be providing all this excellent care, but we got to take care of ourselves too. So that should be part of our mission is helping to heal healthcare workers, right? And so it actually bonded us. It bonded us, I think, in a in a tremendous way. And as we did the what's our why, it was interesting because we all came to the table, right? And my L and D person was like, well, my why is, you know, so that we have healthy babies. And then in the ICU, my why is so that they go to step down. And then med surge, my why is that, you know, they're total function. Nobody's why was the same. So I said, how could we as a nursing leadership team be directing our ship when we're all have on our own silos, you know, putting all of these fishing nets and other parts of the ship, like we're not working together as a team. And so it was a really great yeah. exercise where at the end we realized our why was to improve the lives of the people that we were serving every day, period. That's it. Yep. Simple. So yeah, whatever and, that and looks like, right? Yeah. And that exercise of simplifying is so huge. Uh, one of the, I think one of the easiest mountains I move when I work with a team or an organization is they're usually trying to chase some competency model for leadership. Now, I know for, for positions, you need competency models, like certain technologies you have to be competent in. So it is very technical, but for the leadership side, it's a big mistake to try to make any leader, especially in a clinical environment, chase, you know, 15 random characteristics that people in another room they weren't a part of, you know, listed off. The reality is, is they don't chase any of them and they don't remember any of them. And if you quiz them at any given point in time, they might be able to rattle off two or three of them. And what they're probably rattling off are their own values and just hoping, <laughs> that, hoping, hoping that, they, that they align. You know, instead, especially with a, a team of, of leaders, you know, so on, on the more macro level, say like, like at a hospital is, you know, get rid of that, that competency model. What are the two or three things that, man, if all of your clinical leaders got really good at that over the course of, of this year, be it, say, empathy, for instance, or perspective taking, so meaning like looping in others before making decisions or some little thing, if everyone in our organization got really good at just those maybe two things, it would really move mountains for us. And that, that process of simplifying is really underutilized in, in an organization. People in OD, you know, and, and learning love to use words like robust and sophisticated <laughs> uh, when it comes to, to, to their system, but it just ends up being bloody baffling for the actual leaders, you know, where the rubber hits the road, the people doing the work. And so how do we simplify that? And I, I think you described just a really great way that that, that happens. Yeah, I didn't realize that 
that was the case that, that we needed to simplify. And so I was in this executive planning meeting and we were talking like this high level, like we want to make it easy for our patients and we want it to be affordable and we want this and that, blah, blah. And so then we started writing out our goals. Like, what's our vision? You know, in five years from now, what do we want? And we were writing out these like lofty, lofty goals. And then like this soul in the room who was thinking everything that we were not saying said, this is nice. This is dandy. This is great. And guess what? My people on the front line aren't going to know what to do with it. They're not even going to understand it. They're not going to know how to implement it. There's, this is like zero actionality for them. They're going to look at this and say, whatever, it's just a mumbo on the wall. Like it doesn't matter to me. And we realized like, oh, we got a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Like we are creating these lofty targeted goals and it means zilch to the people who are actually doing the work. Like it does not mean anything to them. And you know, that's a problem when you're strategic planning without the people that are going to be doing the work every day. So it's important to bring them in on that journey early on, not after the fact, like, oh, this is our plan. What do you think of it? No, they've got to be there at the table right away. So, I mean, we just talked about some different leadership myths around like simplifying. In your book, you have a whole section on some leadership myths. Talk to me about some of the myths that you uh, wrote about or that you've seen in terms of, you know, leaders. Yeah, um, I'll I'll confess something to you and, and your audience here. Most of these myths are things that uh, are they come from mistakes I've made in my <laughs> career and places where I've royally screwed up or alienated people or been run out of town or or whatever. <laughs> run out of town. <laughs> where uh, yeah, not literally, but uh, <laughs> and you know it's things that we actually when I take a step back we really do hang hang our hat on and I think uh, I'll mention one at least that I think COVID has really. Um, made it obvious to us. And for me, that was this, this notion of classroom training for the, the leader being the, the primary tool for leadership development. Now, I think it's great. And I don't want to betray my own, you know, my own work and, and you know, my own industry. So I, I want to be clear and, and, and not be taken wrong that classroom training has, has a place. But I think an easy example of this is conflict resolution, for instance, like almost everyone in, in clinical and the clinical arena has taken a conflict resolution class. And I joke with people after that, if they say, yes, they've taken it, I say, great. So now you live your life conflict free, don't you? And they laugh at that. <laughs> it's a joke to think that I say, well, you know, tell me how that class changed how you work with conflict. And nobody really has a good, an- a good answer to that. And one of the reasons is you may sit in this class by yourself or even with a small group of people. And you're learning some new tools and imagine you're learning something just different, like it's Mandarin or something. And then you bring Mandarin back to your team and you start speaking Mandarin because in your head, it's like, this is great. It's what an elegant, beautiful language. But then people just look at you like, what? And so we learn these tools of conflict, but we bring them into an environment where nobody else has learned them. And we try them once or twice. And like really any learning we get in the classroom environment, we take one or two steps back into the riptide of our day, of our, of our routine and our workplace. And we're pulled back out to sea. And that stuff is so far in our rear view mirror. What organizations hope is that if we give people enough of that training over the course of months and years, enough of it kind of stuck to them that uh, there, there's, there's <laughs> the, suddenly, residue, the residue of those classes. Yeah. And it, it, it residue is a good way to put that. <laughs> and um, I, I saw that as extremely wasteful. And, you know, what we try to do instead is, is simple things like, like the, the mindset work that, that we do. And we give leaders a new lens with which, which way they can see situations and it automatically heightens their empathy. They're automatically equipped to in, engage in a tough situation differently. And 
it's a bit counterintuitive because I, especially in, in the clinical world, like we really view education as just like a, a, a blunt force instrument that here's an instructor, here's information, cram it in, and it's your responsibility to have it all now. So after this hour, anything I taught you, my hands are washed and you better have it on. And and we we apply that. Well, yeah. And while that may be useful for some of the technical skills, like maybe you only want to teach blood draw a certain number of times and you should be able to do it at at that point. We're really playing with fire when we teach, when we're, we're trying to teach leaders really important skills, but we contain it to the classroom and we don't give leaders an opportunity to really engage and you know, the more modern models of, of learning where they can get some, uh, some social interaction around the learning, some emotional in, engagement, which is like all of our memories are attached to emotions. It's how that works. But we, we don't put that in the classroom at all. That is brilliant. <laughs> I'm sitting here, you know, of somebody who's been in healthcare for a long time and has had many crucial conversations, many difficult conversations who has been trained many times in crucial conversations. And I couldn't even begin to tell you what step one is. Uh, I know what my step one is, but I don't know that it um, is rooted in any model. I can't remember it. So, and I do remember, interestingly enough, after I did take that course and it was a long course, it was like a week long course of me sitting there and learning day after day after day, like different ways to handle things. I do remember shortly after that, having a conversation and conflict arose and I still didn't know what to do. Like I had all this training, but I was like, which tool do I pull from? Or how do I, I still didn't. And then the emotions that came from feeling attacked by this person, like I just couldn't even think clear enough to begin to have managed that in any um, good way. So can I, <laughs> yeah, actually, you, can I share something about yeah. that very, very shortly? This was funny. So actually a piece on, on the crucial conversations piece that I think was so fascinating to me is just learning the biology of it. That was the one thing that stuck with me more than anything is, and this, this ties into, you know, the, the clinical environment that, that we're in and how stressful and, and, um, uncertain it is. Uh, but, um, when we, when we are engaged in that tough situation, you know, the, the biological function that kicks in is fight or flight. So, and that, whether it's a social interaction or a physical one, like the brain doesn't differentiate that yet. We haven't evolved that. So it's, it's fight or flight. And if you think about fight or flight in a workplace, it's fight or flight, not fight or flight or meaningful discussion, meaningful discussions <laughs> off the table. The reason for that is because that, that flush of, of hormones, what comes offline is our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that's actually responsible for higher learning perception, teamwork, creativity. That goes offline so that our extremities get all, all of that attention, all of that blood. And so it actually, we are dumber in these, in these situations, but no matter what we learn, I think it's a farce to think that let's learn something so that we're, when we're in this situation where we're as dumb as possible, we'll be able to, we'll be able to, to, to use Apply it that we learned in, in, a, in a, in a classroom. It just doesn't work, you know? So it's, there, there's, there's better ways emerging to, to handle that, but. Yeah, it is crucial conversations that, that first taught me that, that we are biologically wired to be awful at things that the leaders need to be best at. Interesting. Totally interesting. All right. Well, I mean, I feel like I could talk to you forever and ever and ever about this topic. We've, we've touched on a lot of great subjects. Um, like I said, there's, your book is just a wealth of information around how to become that easy leader, how to identify your values, how to really live your values, right? We all say that we have these values. I used to say that my values were uh, my family and 
whatnot. And I was not living them working 60, 80 hours a week was not living my values. So we say we have our values, but it's a whole nother story to actually live those values in. Uh, Chris's book teaches you how to do that. So totally recommend to check it out. Um, If folks want to find out more about you and Bushido Leadership, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, So Bushido, B-U-S-H-I-D-O, is found anywhere on social media. What I've got set up right now is anybody listening can text RN Leader. uh, Caps don't matter, just RN Leader to 55444. And that'll just give you a prompt. You can uh, uh, sign up for our, our mailing list. The mailing list is it's, it's um, most of the resources that we have. You know, I, I send out on on a regular basis for free some of these nuggets that, that we've discussed here today. I just think that there's there's such a need for it out there, and based on the feedback I've gotten is the main reason I decided to to really do that a lot. You know, my custom work in the coaching is is where I, I, I earn the money, but. I welcome anybody to to join that that mailing list and just uh, um, take in whatever uh, whatever you feel is uh, positive for you. Awesome! You also have a Facebook group that I'm a part of. Do you want to share the name of your Facebook group? Yes, it's called Nurse Leaders Overcoming Burnout. We're pretty new. We actually just got over a thousand members, which is a giant milestone. About and we're starting things like office hours very soon. And some of the things, and this is up in the air right now, but I am in the process of getting uh, continuing ed credits for a few of the modules that will be in that group. And it's, uh, it's a public group, but you have to be approved to join. So again, it's called um, Nurse Leaders Overcoming Burnout, and it's on Facebook. Awesome. And if you haven't joined the Nurse Leader Network a Facebook group, I also recommend that you join that one as well. Chris, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate all of the work that you're doing for nurses and the healthcare profession. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. It was a blessing to be here. I appreciate it. 